and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. Series 9, Session 2, it's Thursday the 19th of May 2022. Welcome back. Um, this title's, this session is titled, and thanks for whacking up the slide, Gemma, because I just can't recall, post-viral recovery. And I think it's covering that suite of post-viral, post-hospital, and we're heading into that, yes, long COVID syndrome. So um, we've given that that collective suite because um, we want to kind of look at how to differentiate those kind of conditions and that's what we'll be um, talking about in our didactic today. But before we get underway, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands from which we're all zooming in from. I'm zooming in from the lands, the beautiful lands of the Wathaurong um, peoples and um, I pay my respects to elders both past and present and and um, and my colleagues across Western Vic and um, and to all of you wherever you're zooming in from and the uh, I think it's um, really important that we acknowledge the meaning of place, especially uh, over these last few years as we have been um, kind of connecting digitally um, uh, and reconnecting with our kind of physical spaces um, that we pay our respects and support self-determination of First Nations people and organisations and we will work together on closing the gap. Uh, so good morning and welcome again. This session will kick off a two-part series of post-COVID syndromes and we'll focus on clinical presentations that follow in the immediate post-infectious, post-admission time and we'll consider how to differentiate this from those who might be experiencing a more chronic and prolonged complex um, of symptoms. Our didactic will <clears throat> provide a brief overview of the evidence to date for this syndrome, um, both overseas and here in Australia. Um, and our case presentation will focus on the practical strategies that we can implement in the community setting. We'll be asking the questions, uh, the question of what could be managed by GPs with the support of nursing and allied health staff in routine settings and might what might need to be referred to more specialised services. Um, so we'll get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP. I'll be facilitating today's meeting alongside the um, ECHO and workforce team, um, Gemma, Katrina, uh, Naomi, thanks to Zach for continuing to write notes and welcome to everyone. Thanks for introducing yourself in the chat and letting us know about the lines from which you're zooming in from today. Quick flag, uh, the primary care refresher. Now, this is a hybrid event. And there are limited face-to-face -face, um, places. So if this is an opportunity for you to catch up with colleagues the first time in a few years through one of the PHN events, um, I'd encourage you to get online and, and book soon because there are limited places. Um, and, um, and yeah, it'd be really nice to see some of you, those of you who are in the Geelong site. I'll be in um, doing some housekeeping that day, di digital housekeeping. Um, and, of course, Professor Michael Kidd and um, Ruth Stewart. Yeah, fantastic. Um, honorees who will be coming in um, live, I think, to share um, their insights and, um, and lessons uh, learnt over the last few years with us. Um, great program. And Katrina, if people want to access the program, I guess they just jump onto the registration link, don't they? Yeah, it's going to be a good program. All right. Um, what else have we got? Yeah, so, um, and, and of course, next Tuesday night, um, look, we've come to, you know, we, 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 it's been great, the workshopping that we've been doing around antivirals here at ECHO. Um, there is need for probably a much broader event so please do let colleagues know that we're going to catch up on Tuesday that is um, the 24th of May it's a one hour um, panel presentation we've got Associate Professor Dan O'Brien he's a uh, infectious diseases physician from Bowen who is a, a Deputy Chief Health Officer and our very own Kate Graham is going to walk us through um, the, the steps of prescribing and we'll have a panel there from Grampians Pharmacy and Bowen Southwest to really be talking about and drilling down on those processes involved in prescribing oral antivirals in our region. Uh, we've popped a poll up. I'm keen to see what you're seeing. 
quarantine. Um, so take a moment to um, just let us know, indicate how much long COVID or really it's those kind of undifferentiated fatigue, shortness of breath persisting beyond, I guess, I'd say four weeks, but I'm keen to hear what Aaron says, um, or other long COVID symptoms persisting um, beyond 12 weeks since infection. All right. Um, so what have we got on the agenda? You know the etiquette. We'll move straight through. Of course, you can turn your camera off if you don't want to be filmed. We put our video on the website and we'll record the podcast. I think we all know the learning outcomes. So we'll just get straight to the agenda. <coughs> Great. Thank you. So um, Kate Graham is going to bring us an update. Um, and I think importantly, kind of focusing on, so on the long COVID um, uh, health pathways. Um, you know, I think it's, this is going to be an interesting one as it comes in. Keen to see what you're seeing, but I really would encourage those long, uh, you're really becoming familiar with long those long COVID um, health pathways. So we'll walk through those. We welcome back Aaron Block, um, infectious diseases physician from Grampians Public Health Unit to talk about post-acute COVID syndromes. It's a treasure trove of a slide deck that we will send to you because there's a lot of information that um, on there um, that's probably a bit um, big for a very short uh, echo presentation, but I think um, the slides are rich, so we'll send them out as well. Um, well we welcome Corey Watts and Claire Doolan, who are physiotherapists from Belmont Community Rehab um, Centre. It's a Bowen Health Community Health Centre. Who'll be um, describing a case that they have of a um, well. We'll let Corey and Claire describe, but it's a post-admission ICU with COVID and pneumonia. Um, and Naomi White is going to back it up with um, supports that the Westwick PHN um, are able to provide at this time. So with that, I'll throw across to you, Kate Graham, to kick it off. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, so I wanted to just um, tell you all about some things that we do have um, happening at the PHN, just in terms of supporting people with COVID medications and antiviral prescription, because I think like, for a lot of us, it's not the actual sort of clinical assessment or things like that. It's all the bits and pieces around it. Um, we've got some clinical information, resources, support, um, but really importantly, we've got uh, a pharmacy page which lists the retail pharmacies within the Westwick PHN region who are dispensing pharmacies just to save you having to do that ring around um, that people were probably having to do at the start when there was less supply. Um, some pharmacies will not be dispensing, but um, this helps you determine who will be. So the links are all there on the page and we'll pop them in the chat as well. Um, but you can find it just directly from the BHN website and hopefully they'll be of good use to everyone. So another really, really important resource that um, I'm so excited to sort of have as a backup is the pharmacy helpline. Um, so this is sort of from the Alfred Health Service. Um, they have been sort of dispensing, monitoring the um, national stockpile that's been sent to Victoria. So you've got really experienced pharmacists who um, will be able to sort of talk you through um, the antivirals and what you can do, what you can't do, whether a patient's sort of um, medications will interact or not, all those kinds of questions. It's 8 till 5 p.m., seven days a week, and the phone number's there as well. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So in terms of um, the sort of communicable diseases side of things, um, I've left this blank because um, I actually had a different slide um, that somehow hasn't uploaded, but that's probably due to my technological uh, capacity or I probably just didn't press enter or something. Um, so 
what is happening is probably something that's predictable for all of us. As we move into winter, we're seeing more cases. Um, we'll expect to see more cases over the next few weeks leading into sort of June and July. And that's not just COVID, it's influenza because, you know, the risk factors for spreading these illnesses are the same. It's sort of being close contact. They're the same methods of spread. So I think making sure that you are promoting vaccination, not just for COVID, you're checking all the COVID sort of boosters are happening um, and then the vaccinations for influenza are really key. And I think promoting them in children um, as well. We know that we still don't have great uptake overall in the 5 to 12-year-old age group um, in vaccination. So I think that's a group that we can sort of prioritise in terms of talking about vaccinations for COVID with confidence and in conjunction with that, talking about vaccination for influenza. So I'll just go on to the next slide, um, which is the long COVID pathways. Um, actually, what I might do is I'm just going to um, just quickly, like I don't have my own slide in here for some reason. It just didn't upload. But I do want to go through just a couple of things. And so I'm just going to... Um, talk through it. So it's really talking about that antiviral kind of thing. So my antiviral slide has disappeared, but it's I wanted to sort of really mention the patient journey and where we fit in as GPs, because I think that's been a point of confusion um, for some people. Every one of us is in sort of a different area of the PHN um, sort of region. And so in each health service, we've got different methods of patient monitoring. We're now in a position where not all people entering the patient monitoring pathway, um, that doesn't sort of capture all the people who are eligible for antivirals anymore. So we need to make sure that we're capturing the people who don't end up on the monitoring pathway. And we're also supporting the monitoring services um, because some of the monitoring services don't have clinicians um, who can prescribe in there. A lot of them are nurse run um, there may be capacity issues. And so patients may be sent to us. And I think if we've got a patient in front of us who is eligible for antivirals or they come to us with antivirals or we flag at the point of diagnosis that they're eligible, we need to sort of um, be taking responsibility for that patient to make sure that we can get antivirals in as early as possible um, to reduce their risk. Um, I think that the other parts of care are really important as well, which is identifying the patients who are at risk before they test positive. When you're seeing somebody for their regular medication check or blood pressure check, having a chat to them about what happens if they test positive for COVID, um, making sure that they know that they have to register rat tests and things like that, or that they've got pathways to do so that don't involve the internet if they don't have the internet, for example. Um, it's sort of having a look at that website, making sure that you know which are the pharmacies in your area are the ones to send your patients to. Having that chat with the pharmacist at the time of prescription so that you're able to share your clinical information with them so that they're not then chasing you in between people or you're playing phone tag, uh, just to make the process a little bit smoother. And I think really key is having a chat with reception um, and practice management side of things to make sure that patients who are presenting and saying, I need an appointment to get medication for COVID, aren't just automatically blocked and go, oh, we don't see COVID patients. 
because it's a, a telehealth consultation that can take place and it's making sure that they get in in a timely manner or that you've got places that you can send them to if you don't have capacity at that point in time to see them within a time-limited manner. So thinking about GP respiratory clinics um, as another resource um, to help people with prescribing antivirals if you're not able to have capacity at that point in time to do it for your patient. It's still really important that you are participating in it because you're probably the one who holds the patient information. You know their medical conditions, you know their medications, and otherwise you're just going to have to have a back and forth of sharing that information with somebody else. But sometimes equipping a patient with their own medical record is an important part of sort of general healthcare. And I think like when we're thinking about all these patients, if you have a patient that's flagged as a moderate risk patient, they've entered a pathway, um, if they're somebody who's eligible for antivirals, what's that, what that really is flagging for us is not just the immediate risk for them, but it's a long-term risk. They have chronic health conditions. They, um, we need to sort of then think about what will happen for sort of future years if we've got a new sort of COVID infection next winter or the next time that they are faced with something like this. It's about which of those risk factors are modifiable. What points of prevention can we put in to make sure that they don't end up with um, further complications? It's that follow-up for sort of patients who are in those age groups. It's making sure at various points in time that they have follow-up booked for after COVID infection so that you can deal with all of these things when you do have more time to go through sort of a general health checkup and making sure that they don't have um, COVID, uh, long COVID sort of related issues or complications that have caused symptoms for them that are still ongoing. So in terms of the long COVID pathway itself, um, with health pathways, there's a lot of information on there. And I think the thing that I really want to flag with long COVID assessments is that a lot of the sort of checks and balances are around making sure that there's not a serious complication at that point in time. Um, and so looking through the pathway, you can go through whatever the symptoms are, symptom by symptom check and have a look at um, what sort of tests or investigations somebody may need at that point and whether they need referral to a single specialist versus some of the sort of multidisciplinary clinics. Um, I wanted to flag there's a long COVID clinic that's available at a children's hospital that's quite specialised um, if you do have children with long COVID. Um, otherwise, I think a lot of the work can be done sort of within general practice as part of an assessment um, and a clinical assessment, just figuring out which of the symptoms is most concerning for the patient, which is most concerning for you, and working on strategies along with your allied health team and other supports um, in order to make life a bit easier. So I think that probably that is, I'm not sure that I have any more slides for now, um, but if um, I think that that was all for me. Thank you, Kate. Um, good morning, Aaron Block. Welcome. Morning. Good morning. Thanks Are you going to drive? Oh, absolute pleasure. You're going to drive your slides this morning? I will. Thanks. Great. Um, while I'm getting that loaded up, can I take the opportunity to just agree wholeheartedly with something that Kate just said about pre-preparing your patients um, for the possibility of antiviral therapy. I think that's a really good idea if you have a think about it in advance. 
Um, is my patient um, someone who would benefit from Paxlovid? Do I need to make any medication changes now? And then they can get started as soon as possible. So I think that's a really good idea. All right, so I've got, I think, about 15 minutes, but um, please, Bianca, jump in and give me a warning if I'm getting close to the end, maybe a five-minute warning, um, to talk about long COVID. And uh, it was from a bit of a longer presentation, so I'll cut it down, focus on perhaps the more pertinent bits. So Bianca's uh, kind of highlighted a few questions and things, many of which I have to say I don't have the answer to, um, but as we go through. So um, you might know the picture there. It's, it's Pandora, opening Pandora's box, which is a bit how I felt um, when I was researching long COVID, and I'll explain to you a little bit why as we go, and probably how we all feel a bit treating this condition because it is really challenging and it's that, that really hard thing, I think, particularly also in general practice where we have a patient who's really suffering and we don't really know what's going on and don't have that much to offer. So it is a really challenging situation and that's also a little bit how I felt uh, as well, um, probably also two years into the pandemic. Um, so I guess the first question really is what actually is long COVID? And I think we sort of take it for granted, but when you actually think about it, you know, what, what do you have a good sense in your head? What is this condition? Do we have an agreed upon definition? And you know, feel free to pop something in the chat or have a think about it. But researching these um, uh, topic, these are some of the questions that I had about long COVID that I wanted to look at and were of interest to me. So beginning with the case definition, so it, it took a while actually until late 2021, WHO um, undertook a Delphi consensus exercise, the range of stakeholders, including clinicians, but also patients and patient researchers. And they came up with this very catchy paragraph um, uh, definition of long COVID. So uh, history of probable confirmed COVID, usually three months um, from the onset. Um, so that's important, a time course. Symptoms lasting at least two months cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. And they came up with a whole list of um, possible symptoms, but gave some of the more common ones here, fatigue, shortness of breath, cognitive uh, dysfunction impacting on um, everyday function, um, maybe new onsets, that's important. So it might be something that continues on from COVID or it might be completely new symptoms. They may fluctuate or relapse over time. Um, for comparison, you can see that here's a whole bunch of other definitions, each with different sort of um, classification symptoms and time points as well. So what that's giving you a sense of is that actually we're going to find that the evidence base for this condition upon which all these studies we find is very, very shaky, very messy, very um, uh, heterogeneous. So what's the incidence of this condition? Again, keep in mind that all these studies are going to be defining long COVID differently. So it's kind of a little bit hard to get a really clear picture there. But I think what's highlighted there, the British Office of National Statistics data is probably the best we'll get. Um, it's very sort of thorough um, data based on large numbers of uh, people. And they look at sort of depending on their definition, but self-reported long COVID symptoms or ongoing COVID symptoms at 12 weeks, 11.7% um, on one of their recent um, audits. Interestingly, look at the burden here, and I think that's one of the really big issues, and I think it's also one of the big issues for us to think about when we have this sort of essentially let it rip um, policy for COVID. 1.7 million people experiencing long COVID in the UK. Um, 1.1 million people found that they had adverse effects on their ADLs limited a lot. So that's a significant impact. And furthermore, a significant proportion of those still had symptoms ongoing at one year. So that's really something to consider. Additionally, we know that COVID has disproportionately affected communities of colour um, and other sort of uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged um, communities. And long COVID, we assume, 
um, will have the same sort of disproportionate impact. Um, the other question, I think it's a good one. Um, it, it, how does that compare to Australia, given we've had a high vaccination rate before the Omicron wave? I'd suggest that that has protected us. So this um, presentation doesn't go into vaccination significantly itself, but we know that vaccination uh, protects you from COVID itself. So if you're not infected, you won't get long COVID. And there is some data to say that um, your chances of getting long COVID are less if you are vaccinated, perhaps by around a half. So there have been a couple of meta-analyses recently on long COVID, and some of them look at the risk factors for getting long COVID itself. Now, I think the key issue here is that uh, most of these meta-analyses make the point that their studies are completely heterogeneous. There's a lot of biases. They're all retrospective studies. Some of them are looking at hospitalised cohorts. Some of them are looking at um, are recruited from online surveys and social media. So you can see there's lots of potential for, for biases there and, and a very sort of disparate um, uh, groups that are being meta-analysed. So whilst we can't make firm conclusions about what the actual risk factors are, some of the, idea, uh, the themes that come up you know, uh, a severity, um, high BMI tends to come up quite a lot. Um, female comes up a bit, healthcare workers come up a bit. And that's important, again, reflecting on the burden of this and how it's impacting what we know is our, our health um, workforce and general workforce crisis. So what about the pathophysiology? Well, it's pretty uncertain. So uh, whilst we now have a really good idea of acute COVID-19, amazingly quickly how, how um, amazing how quickly we learned about that as well as development of vaccines and so on and treatments. So direct viral toxicity, endothelial damage, microvascular injury, this immune dysregulation and, and hyperinflammatory state, um, hypercoagulability and so on. So for post-COVID, the literature is dotted with um, we hypothesise and it may and we suppose, etc. So we're still learning quite a lot about that. But in terms of the ideas that come up, so there's the virus-specific pathophysiological changes, there's um, perhaps this is expected sequelae of post-critical illness. But what we're learning more and more about is the immunological side. So immunological aberrations, inflammatory change in uh, a damaged response to acute infection. There was some really interesting research out recently. I'd encourage you to have a look um, from Sydney, um, looking at the immune consequences eight months on. And actually, they were able to demonstrate that um, there are changes in the innate immune function up to eight months on. So um, we are really learning a lot in this area, and that might actually be helpful in other post-viral conditions that we've struggled to understand up to this point. Um, so really what you'll see, I'm going to race through the next bunch of slides, is that essentially we're dealing with multi-organ um, dysfunction. We know that COVID is a really tricky disease and is tropic for a whole bunch of, of organs um, in the body. So we can expect that there's going to be um, uh, pulmonary sequelae. We know that there's cardiac sequelae with um, COVID found in myocytes on autopsy, as well as impact on um, cardiac conduction. Um, chest pain is a really common one as a palpitation shortness of breath. Um, clots, I think, is more associated <clears throat> with the acute sort of setting. Um, uh, neuropsychiatric, that's a really, really big one and a really big impact. We're seeing um, psychiatric manifestations. We're seeing brain fog, um, you know, depression, anxiety, headaches. Uh, and, and I think the other interesting thing is that with um, Omicron, we're seeing this exhaustion and brain fog type thing particularly um, prominent. So I think it's become a really, really neurotropic um, condition. The other thing that's really interesting is that we've seen this um, UK study, which has shown that those who have had COVID have lower brain mass, and it doesn't need to be severe COVID either. So really concerning. Um, renal tends to be more in the acute setting. We have endocrine manifestations, GIT, not a lot. 
and, and dermatologic with um, some rash acute setting and then also hair loss in chronic COVID, in long COVID. So what are the symptoms? We can see a whole range here, but some of the more prominent ones, fatigue, headache, um, cough, shortness of breath. And again, the question, which variant? So again, it's a really good question. So this um, data comes from 2020. So this is actually probably the Wuhan strain and it may be different with Omicron, um, but it takes time, I guess, for that to filter through. What is the evidence base? So this comes from one of the meta-analyses and just highlighting that point I made before. So green is a good study, low risk of bias, yellow, medium, and, and a red X, high risk of bias. So you put rubbish in, you get rubbish out. So that's something that's really important to consider when we're analysing and reading about long COVID. What's the actual quality of the feeding in data? So that's where this study comes in that I wanted to have a quick look at. Um, identification of distinct long COVID um, clinical phenotypes through cluster analysis. And I guess it's part of the ongoing effort to better understand COVID, learn more about it, characterize it, and then find um, treatments for it. So background, we've talked about it a little bit. They've come up with 37.7%. I think that's probably a bit of an overestimate, but you can see there one symptom at 12 weeks. So a fairly generous definition. Um, there's no- can I, this... can I pause you there for a second, Aaron? Just because, yeah. um, uh, you know, when you were describing that definition before, I started to kind of create like a little checklist for myself um, because I, I worry that without this accepted um, criteria going forward, we're going to be, we might even be using language like you've got long COVID where some, you know, which, which language can be quite difficult, right? And we could create um, not only problems for patients, but also problems for an overburdened health system. And I think it's really important we get this right. So could I just quickly stop for a moment? Because when we go through this, I think it's really good for us to have this criteria in mind. So I just want to check with you. You said it's got to be probable or confirmed, number one, COVID. So we've got to have a good story of COVID or a serology or a positive result. Yeah, back yep. to that slide. We've got to, it's got to be at least 12 weeks. So when you did, what that study said was, yes, after 12 weeks. So we're not going to call it long COVID within 12 weeks. Yeah. Yep. Now you said it's got to have, we're going to have at least two months of symptoms. So we should be now out at the 20 week mark, right? If we're going to have at least two months of symptoms. Oh, no, I'd, I'd, my interpretation of that would be at least two months of symptoms, but at three months from the onset of COVID. Oh, okay. That was a bit yeah. that caught me with that slide yeah. there. So actually it's at least, it's two months of symptoms. And now they- It's a pretty wordy definition. It's a, well, we, yeah. yeah, I get it. But, it, but I mean, fatigue, so it doesn't, so it can be only fatigue. It can be only shortness of breath and it can be only cognitive function. So mm. one symptom's enough for the criteria? I think so, yeah. Hmm. Okay, but it must impact on daily life. So like our yep. mental health diagnosis, we've got to see a decrease in function. And, of course, it can't be explained by alternative diagnosis. Yeah. All right, so we're satisfied. I just wanted to quickly drill that no, bit no in problem. as you – okay. And I think the other thing that's quite interesting in terms of when I was researching this is the characterization of a new disease. So COVID itself was coded as an ICD diagnosis, so International Classification Disease, in February 2020. Mm -hmm. And this came up in uh, by about, I think, September 2020, around the same time as the multisystem inflammatory syndrome. So interesting to think about how does a new disease come to be um, in, in sort of the medical sphere. Um, so... Um, yeah, so look, we've covered this. Studies are often very heterogeneous. So we're trying to build a better evidence base um, to serve us with this condition. So what were the aims? They wanted to describe self-reported symptoms um, of those presenting to tertiary hospitals with long COVID. They wanted to identify underlying patterns in presentation, correlate with objective measures, and use this multiple corresponding analysis and hierarchical clustering. And we'll, we'll um, 
we'll go into that a little bit. So interesting in Ireland, I was a little bit jealous of this actually, they have this you know, perpetual cohort study, um, fantastic data. So anyone who comes to an infectious diseases clinic goes into this prospective study where their data is collected and that it can be used for um, projects like this. Inclusion criteria, again, very generous, PCR positive symptoms beyond four weeks. So remember the definition of the WHO is 12 weeks. So again, it's a little bit messy. Um, Everything they did, they tried to be as objective as standardised as possible to counter what was kind of a very messy evidence base. So whilst there is a lot of subjective data, they're using, um, you know, the most robust forms that they can. So the WHO score for severity, Medical Research Council for dyspnea, and this short form survey, which is a, a recognised survey for quality of life. Um, so in terms of this statistical analysis, this multiple correspondence analysis, I'd be far from the best person to explain it, but essentially the way I understand it is they're taking um, data points, they're plotting them in um, sort of in, in coordinates and space, and then they're using the sophisticated analysis to essentially cluster them together using, you know, what are the, the fewest um, dimensions that can account for um, the biggest um, variance. Um, so they start off with you know, each person is their own cluster, they bring them together and then they emerge with these um, clusters within long COVID. So very brief and, and rough explanation. Um, they started with what 1451, ended up with 233 patients. In terms of who we're looking at, this is a pretty homogenous cohort, but I think the key thing here is we're really looking at healthcare workers, which again reinforces what long COVID is doing to us and our workforce, but um, predominantly female, um, a little bit overweight, um, predominantly healthcare worker, and look at the absence from work, seven, 10, 12, six weeks, really significant impacts here. So what were the symptoms? We've talked about this already. They're pretty similar to what we showed on um, some of the previous slides. And here's the cluster analysis where I think it gets really interesting. So this is the cluster map, and this is a heat map. And what you can see is the different symptoms um, that have uh, been described and, and are they yes or no? And we see the emergence of three distinct clusters. So the first is uh, musculoskeletal and pain predominant. The second is cardiorespiratory predominant. And the third is not specified, but more of a sort of just general fatigue and dyspnea um, phenotype. So in terms of the cluster analysis, 37 patients in the first, pain predominant, musculoskeletal, uh, myalgia, arthralgia, and then also headache, dizziness, GI symptoms, and cough. The second, cardiorespiratory predominant, chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, but also fatigue and poor concentration. And the third was the biggest cluster, but they had the lowest number of reported symptoms with a median of two, and it was more fatigue and dyspnea. So you can see the symptoms here in this table in the interest of time, we'll skip further ahead. So um, multinomial logistic regression unadjusted, we can see female and healthcare worker coming up again, and then initial mild severity coming for one. So interesting that um, sometimes severity is associated with long COVID, sometimes mild severity, sometimes hospitalisation. It's a bit contradictory at times. Um, on adjusted logistic regression, they found that, again, some of these factors came up, healthcare worker, female, um, BMI. So what about the impacts between the different clusters? Well, we can see that essentially cluster one um, and two had higher dyspnea scores than cluster three. We can see that cluster one and two had higher ED attendance rates. We can see that cluster one and two had um, higher uh, amounts of missed work. All of them had um, greater impact than the general population on those different um, domains across their functioning. And I'll just draw your attention to the top right-hand corner here where you can see um, role limitations due to physical health, one and two compared to three, significant difference there in terms of their impact of this disease on what they're able to do in terms of work um, and their general function.
Clinical assessment, um, basically there wasn't a lot of objective findings, but where there were with things like tachycardia, um, orthostatic hypertension, or abnormalities on echoes and ECGs, they tended to be most in cluster two, the cardiac um, cluster. The only reason to include this investigation slide is to say that they're all within the normal limits. So it's that challenge of when we see a patient, we say, oh, your CRP is normal, your ESR is normal, there's nothing wrong. But actually, going back to that um, sophisticated uh, immunological research, we probably just don't have the tools yet to recognise what's going on. Hospitalisation. So outpatients had more long COVID on this paper compared to those who were admitted but those who were admitted had higher dyspnea scores and the same sort of pattern was there for intensive care. So in terms of discussion, this is um, the first use of this hierarchical clustering technique, which has been used for other conditions like sleep apnea and antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, and it suggests three broad clinical phenotypes. So the first one, predominance of pain, myalgia, arthralgia, headache, highest median number of symptoms. And although no objective clinical findings, really significant disability, high rates of ED attendance. And the authors question if this could be similar to what we, um, you know, colloquial know as uh, chronic fatigue. Cluster two, cardiorespiratory, highest rate of tachycardia, all of the pericarditis and myocarditis cases were contained there. 87% had mild initial symptoms, but long COVID can be severe even with mild uh, illness. So again, it's just so challenging to work out who will uh, be affected. And cluster three, lowest median number of symptoms, but the most common. And they wonder, is it plausible that this cluster represents actually individuals within the normal realm of recovery from an atypical virus? And furthermore, is there actually one long COVID or are we seeing distinct conditions? And clearly to understand it, to treat, we need to work out exactly who has what condition and what's causing it. And interestingly and excitingly, there are some other cohort studies that are showing similar clusters um, to the ones found here. So we clearly have a lot to learn in the long COVID space. And I think the evidence is emerging rapidly, which is fantastic. A lot of limitations here as well. It's a small, co small cohort. Um, it's a cross-sectional design. It's fairly homogenous, um, but, but I think interesting findings nonetheless. So in summary, um, classifying long COVID, uh, a vital step to understand the potentially distinct underlying pathophysiological mechanisms, and then furthermore, identify therapeutic interventions. Into the future, we have some far high quality prospective studies um, that are following patients very rigorously, like, like this PHOSP uh, COVID study in the UK, 10,000 patients. And I hope that over time that will give us um, further interesting data. So thanks very much. And sorry for going a few minutes over time. No, that's great. Thanks, Aaron. A um, couple of questions. Um, any objective markers to differentiate or monitor these three clusters? Yeah, well, that's what we all want. Um, I hope that out of this research from Sydney, we can um, uh, have some immune markers, um, such as those innate um, immune markers, but at the moment they're not in routine clinical practice. So unfortunately, it's still pretty great, it's still pretty messy. It's all sort of um, supportive therapy uh, and clinical diagnosis at present. But but of course, you know, in terms of organ specific manifestations, if you had a patient with tachycardia and so on, you might consider a halter and echo that sort of thing. But no blood test that would say yes, you've got you know post COVID condition cluster two, for example. And I wonder, you know, like having recently had a household experience of COVID and I could tell you one of us was, the, you know, in our acute symptoms looked very much like those different clusters. Do we think there's something like, I'm going to try to be fancy here, HLA types or like is there something genetic around a genetic immuno? Have we looked into some of that stuff? I mean, don't answer that question now. But was did did people seem to carry those symptoms in their acute phase through to that being the type of symptoms they were getting in their long COVID? 
I don't think necessarily. I mean, that that study itself that I analysed really didn't go into enough granular detail. But, you know, one thing to say is that, you know, with Cluster 2, they had quite mild presentations initially, but tended to be the ones with the worst long COVID. So, um, but I couldn't say on the granular level of whether they were the ones who had um, particularly, you know, chest pain um, when when they um, came into the to the hospital initially or, or yeah. had their initial condition. And it's just funny because we have been noticing, haven't we, crew, that some people just tend to get more of that chest and upper airways piece. So others get the aches and pains. We, we're seeing this kind of um, it's an interesting virus, isn't it? The different array mm. of expressions individuals have with the exact same infection. Mm, mm. Um, Paul Egan and Kate, you might be the one to answer this, but healthcare workers are uh, we yet to have. Our fourth vaccination. What's happening there? Um, I'm not sure what what Kate's doing in the background. She often has a busy morning. So Paul and um, everyone wanting that answer, we'll get you an answer in the chat. I think at this point, though, I'd like to move on to Corey and Claire, just in the interest of time. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. We'll leave it this morning with the PHN update. And um, I'm going to hand over to Naomi White. Um, now, I want you all quickly also to let me know in the chat. I, You know, this is kind of like a, a whole different type of echo. I think we could do this really well as a bigger um, case presentation echo, not what we've been doing in pandemic response. So I'd be kind of keen, put in the chat, like really to do that, you would need to send me cases. We wouldn't create a long COVID echo unless we had six cases in, in the bag as an example. Um, so just let me know if there's any appetite for that going forward at the moment we're looking at the pandemic echo probably you know slowing down and maybe kind of concluding in june um but of course it's just delightful to see so many of you here this morning i just need to know what you need okay thanks Dovey. thanks bianca um i just want to circle back um to the to the comments uh about the state system um allison uh mentioned that they're getting to the p1s and p2s so p stands for priority um and not those P3s and P4s that could be eligible uh, in conjunction with the 66% of those that are eligible for um, for antivirals not being prescribed those. Uh, I think this is a representation at the moment that the sheer volume of COVID cases coming in to their state services is outstripping the, the, the capacity that the teams have. And this isn't unique to Western Victoria. Uh, this is statewide. Um, and there's an opportunity here for GPs to um, become more in, involved and aware of um, the opportunity to prescribe to their patients. Uh, and we're talking about long COVID here and the less you have symptoms and the better your treatment is for COVID, the less likely uh, you're going to develop long COVID. So um, please look into um, the opportunity to prescribe. Uh, they're definitely, the public health units are definitely looking for more GPs to, to take on care of clients, particularly those um, people that aren't of super high risk. Uh, so please look into that as well. Um, I'm just going to reminder and put on the screen because the slides do go out is the pharmacy assistance from the Alfred. So this is um, assistance with um, going through the medications and that. So obviously you will have still need to have done the eligibility for the individual for COVID antivirals. And this is more looking about what medications and their, and their health conditions and whether there's a contraindication uh, for prescription. You can also look at um, get, uh, partnerships with local pharmacies. Um, so we've got developed the page that Kate um, mentioned earlier. So we've contacted all of those uh, pharmacies directly 
Um, some of them have stock on site and some of them are willing to get it in. But I do encourage GPs that if you're starting to see these clients um, to uh, get in contact with your local pharmacy and have that discussion. Um, they really need a heads up if you're prescribing as well, um, because for them, they've also got to know what their renal functions like as well, particularly with that Paxlovid. Um, so definitely an opportunity to develop some relationships here um, and the uh, resources on our website. Um, uh, exciting news for those that have been asking since December to reduce their Pfizer order. You can now order it at 60 doses. Moderna remains at 100. Uh, and a reminder that if anybody's doing doses one and two for people, that the recommended gap is now eight weeks between one and two. Um, and then if anybody's still got more questions on COVID antivirals, we'll see you Tuesday um, for a discussion. Thank you. And also, um, we just wanted to highlight there is going to be as part of the GP refresher, we've got a lead speaker from Emerge Australia coming um, to give a presentation on differentiating long COVID from CFS and ME. So we're going to have a one-hour session dedicated to this. Um, so hopefully that scratches a lot of your long COVID itches. I think we are. it's a very new space. I'm really keen to you know hear what you're saying. Cases are welcome. I think um, we've got a case... Um, hopefully lined up for fortnight's time. But um, any further discussions on long COVID, we will only make, I'm going to say, if we've got cases. So send us cases. I'll create a long COVID template. Um, we'll send it out to you and we'll be knocking on your door each week. Um, we'll see you in a fortnight's time. Thanks, everyone. Good luck out there. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.